0: Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. I hope you're well and I want to warn you up front that this is not an easy listen because we are dealing with the subject of sexual trauma, of sexual assault and the incredibly tricky aftermath of that, especially for someone who is queer or gender non-conforming. My guest is Jamie Windus. They are a wonderful model and speaker and advocate and writer and general all-round good human being. A few years ago, they were subjected to a terrible trauma at the hands of someone else sexually. And we do not go into details as to what exactly happened to Jamie because I wanted to be very respectful of their privacy and to not re-traumatize them in their generous move to come onto this podcast and unpack something that is very difficult for anyone to talk about. But I'm deeply honored that they chose me to come and discuss this with very personally, very thoughtfully. And I think their motivation for wanting to talk about this subject with people could not be more beautiful because I think they felt very alone at the time that it happened and they don't want anyone else to feel that way. And we really get into the weeds of how different trauma looks in all kinds of different people. In this episode, we discuss the experience with sexual assault, but mostly the immediate effect that had on their mental health. We discuss the services and support available to trans, queer and non-binary people and why it's important to ask for support. And we discuss exactly how trauma responses look so different in everyone and how there is really no right way to feel. You know, I think from films and books and TV and songs, we have this kind of finite idea of, of what trauma is supposed to look like in ourselves. And therefore we can't spot it when it comes in more covert ways and from different angles and it surfaces old other traumas and maybe that's how it comes out. And so I think that's a really valuable part of this chat. I mean, the whole chat is so valuable, but I think very few people talk about the subject of of the different masks that trauma can wear. And it's really helpful to hear it like this because so many of us are walking around thinking that we're not struggling when we are just dismissing our symptoms. And Jamie talks about this incredibly eloquently. We also discuss how Jamie has taken the opportunity of recovery to reconnect with themselves and they talk about where they are now a few years later and the healing that they have done. It is ultimately an uplifting conversation because I, as Jamie's friend, can say that I have never seen them so authentic and and so at peace with themselves and at peace with their words and It is, as as you know, I myself, I'm a sexual trauma survivor, and so it always gives me hope to see people find a way to kind of rise from the ashes of another person's sins. And it's so unfair that any of us should ever have to go through that or do any of that. But given that it is something that is increasingly common in our society, it is nice to hear that someone was able to give themselves love, grace, patience time and true space to heal not only from this one thing but to try to heal from everything and so i totally understand if this episode is too much for you i i don't want you to feel any kind of pressure to have to listen through i can see you next week but if you are going to stick around then please join me in loving admiring and offering all of the support in the world to the excellent Jamie Windust. Jamie Windus welcome back to highway. How are you?
1: Thank you very much. I'm I'm grand, you know. How are you? I
0: mean you're yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I mean you're glowing. You look good for it. I'm very uh touched that you're here because you have trusted me with a really difficult conversation. And I mean I don't want to label it even as difficult. It's really up to you to decide what the what the word is to describe it, but um a fragile situation and i really appreciate that you feel safe to talk to me about this today um can you talk to me a bit about the mental health journey you've been on in the last few years because it's been quite a ride
1: yeah thank you i um you yeah, know uh, first off i'm really grateful to be able to have a space to share um, openly and comfortably. And also, again, not to kind of be too preachy about it, but in a space where I know that people c- have access to conversations like this and people can engage with, with, with conversations around mental health. So I'm really grateful for that. I wanted to just be like, this is what's happened uh, yeah. in my life. Um, this is how I'm doing now. And this is what I think as a collective group of people on this planet, we can do to help other people who may be in the same situation.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you feel comfortable disclosing what that situation is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually i iway has really been a thread in my mental health journey when oh, it comes maybe. to like pin like pinpointing moments in my life that have really changed. So that first summer of the pandemic in twenty twenty, you know, we'd all been through a lot. And I just recorded the series with Iway and the amazing team, and literally, like, I think two weeks, two three weeks before that, I was raped, um, and I, I then found myself in a position where it felt very much like sink or sink or swim. It was like, what do you do now? You know, you either let this. Kind of wash over you, and, and you drown in the repercussions of 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 being someone who's been raped. Or do you try and scramble for normality and try and continue with what was going on in your life before, despite the fact that your life is very different now? You know, I can look back now and think it wasn't because I was wasn't trying to look after myself. But it was because I craved normality. I decided to stick with. Let's just keep going. Let's just plow on. Let's just do what we were doing, and let's process this later.
0: Mhm.
1: Because that's what I needed at the time.
0: Yeah, I I was the same. I was the same when it happened to me. I was exactly the same as uh, uh, I think everyone has a very different reaction and I think some people are I think our brains are very clever and they know that we can't handle the information right now and they block it out. Mm. And so I uh yeah, it's it's that therefore it becomes hard sometimes to know what's going on with your brain because we have a very singular idea of what the aftermath of sexual assault looks like because of the way it's portrayed in the media and and I I appreciate you talking about that sort of numb that comes afterwards
1: yeah because it's and I want to say this quite you know quite boldly at the start the point of me having this conversation and talking about this today isn't to continue my own processing but is to shine a light on the fact that Exactly like you've just said, the experiences of survivors are so complex and nuanced that it can feel like if you're not experiencing life how it is in the films or how it is in TV after sexual assault, how you, how you think you should be, it can kind of feel like you're doing it wrong, or you you know, or you're letting it take control, or you're not giving it enough space. There's so much like, what do I do? And I think what I wanted to do with with sharing what happened to me is to say. There is no blueprint on what to do because I mean there just isn't. Like <laughs> there's not it's not something
0: Yeah, as with a lot of what you talk about in your day-to-day life, there's a spectrum of responses. Uh, just yeah. like there's a spectrum of everything. And um and I think one of the things that I thought would be really interesting for us to be able to discuss around this is the, the spectrum of that pattern of behavior that you experienced over the course of the next few years because it kind of it was a kind of slow burn that suddenly sped up and and so could you give me a sort of timeline of of your mental health so after it happened the immediate aftermath uh where where were you at what was your lifestyle looking like were there ways in which you were trying to um i don't know Live even more boldly. That's what I did straight afterwards. I became even I became uh I became um quite reckless and more bold than I've ever been before because there was a part of me that just kind of wanted to extra prove that I you know, that I was I was strong and I was still here and I was fine, I was untouched. Um, I wonder what your experience was like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's um very similar to me. I think one of the, thing, the biggest things that I've learned is that the body the body tries to not necessarily recreate the trauma, but it can, for me anyway, it manifested as like putting myself in quite reckless situations or dangerous situations to try and rewrite what had happened.
0: You mean as in putting yourself in, a, in, in somewhat of a, a dangerous situation that you come out of safely to prove your own capacity for safety?
1: Yeah, so it kind of saying, trying to like disprove that it was that would happen every time. So saying, okay, yeah, I might have met someone for an anonymous hookup that then turned into sexual assault, but that doesn't need to be the case every time. And I think what is quite common, um, but what definitely happened for me, is I like ended up back in that cycle in the months afterwards of thinking that I could reengage back into. Uh, sex and intimacy with people, but it was in a way that three years on, I can see was me just trying to rewrite what had happened. And I was trying to convince myself that I had control and I, you know, I was okay, which is completely natural. And that's again, what I want to try and put, put out there is that all of these things that when you look back and you think, gosh, why am I doing that? Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm the problem. And you start to kind of internalize all of this shame and this kind of frustration with what's happened. Actually, it's just your body trying to look after you. It's trying to rewrite what's happened. It's trying to kind of remind you that you're safe. And like I said earlier in, in that initial period, I kind of didn't give myself any space to process it and just continued on with work, continued on with life. I didn't tell a lot of people. And- Did you talk to a
0: therapist? Did you go to anyone for help?
1: I went to, so I went through the traditional channels. So I went through the police initially, um, and they had to pass me on to the NHS mental health services and the Rape Crisis mental health services. Um, and you know, due to the pandemic, due to the current way of life in the UK, the the wait times were just, inc- you know, it was two years. I actually got an email six months ago saying that I was at the top of the list. Um, oh my god! Which. I think at that time, you know, like I live alone. I am quite an independent person. I have always been a really independent person, but to then be in crisis, it's very easy for that to then turn to isolation. And what I needed was was support. So what I did was I I went to a, a private therapist, and I was able to kind of begin there, um, kind of beginning to unpack and. Yeah, that was, that was the beginning of kind of where I'm up to now. I'm still with the same therapist. I still work with him uh, every mm-hmm. week. And this phrase of doing the work and of like unpacking things and deconstructing what's happened and processing isn't, again, it isn't how it's perceived in the media or in film and TV. It, it's messy. It's ugly. It's painful. And it's also long. You know, it's, it takes time and that's kind of where I've been over the past, especially last year, you know, deep in the kind of processing of what's happened. And I think that's important to share because there can be a narrative, especially in the worlds we exist in that processing happens through being able to flick through an Instagram carousel and reading quotes and then being able to feel confident and like, oh yeah, I've I've nailed it. I've processed. But actually it's, Mm it's... a really isolating place to process things like that uh
0: what was your experience like with the with the police and with your own feelings of who the fuck could I turn to who would care
1: yeah thanks for for bringing that in I think it's a really important piece because that was exactly why it felt extra isolating is because you know my experiences with the police you know there were some there were some uh, you know, you could say positive moments where I was fortunate enough that in my part of London there was an LGBTQ plus liaison officer mm-hmm. um, who I got to to see for kind of four to six weeks, um, and he was there. He kind of came straight to me when I reported the incident, um, and I kind of I've written about it quite a lot since in my work, and I kind of almost think of him as a slight. Like, uh, translator um, and so it, it was like the the traditional kind of police turned up and then they had to call in this LGBT liaison officer to kind of come and support which I'm really grateful for um, it did feel a bit clunky but I'm grateful that that was there. I must, you know, One thing I, I have to say is there are some amazing groups in the UK that were so supportive you know I was able to go straight to Gallup who are an amazing LGBTQ plus. Mm-hmm. resource in the UK who help people who are victims of sexual violence, but also, you know, domestic abuse. And also one one thing that I've I noticed in kind of in my experience with working and being a part of uh, services such as like Survivors UK is how impactful yet easy it was for them to adapt to my needs. What do you mean? So for example, I ha- I think, as a marginalized person, I was like, oh, I, don't, I can't ask to see if they have any trans people that I can speak to, or what if they don't have any trans support groups, or they're not going to have this. And all I had to do was ask. And they were like, of course, you know, absolutely, that we, we have that. And uh, maybe 18 months ago, they changed their whole kind of message and branding and ethos to say that we support men, non-binary people and trans individuals. So kind of... I guess predominantly and and women but they really made an emphasis on we no matter who you are or what your gender identity is if you are a victim of sexual violence you can come to one of the UK's leading spaces for support and they made that really public and for me that was shocking to see because I it goes it went against everything that I thought I was telling myself when I was in that crisis of there's going to be nowhere for you to go you're not going to be able to to seek support in any space yet here was the uk's leading charity saying come on in and they got me back up on my feet and still do now you know if you're listening and you know someone or you are in that space of oh i can't talk to anyone i don't need to go anywhere mm-hmm. just have a little bit of hope and have a little bit of trust because i know a lot of the time we don't think there's going to be anything there but people will surprise me
0: spread the word. When you get a fresh hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag don't try to wait till you get home always respect hot chicken The McCrispie only at McDonald's So how long would you say the sort of numbness and denial phase lasted before you realized that actually something was catching up with you like what was that moment of of reckoning
1: it was about a year experiencing kind of patches of depression or kind of episodes of of feeling a little bit anxious or things not feeling like calm and consistent like they had used to i think what i noticed is i essentially was beginning to understand that i had ptsd essentially i didn't know Mm. it at the time i hadn't didn't have the language but what i was really struggling with was stress I didn't know how to manage uh, stress in any form, and it, what what my biggest and first signal and sign that something wasn't right is that things that I used to engage in, for example, work or commitments with friends or family, I just could I couldn't do it anymore because the the feeling of commitment or the feeling of not being able to say no or the feeling of not being able to change my mind. Suddenly, it almost felt like my brain had been rewired. It felt like there was, I could only say yes now. I was never allowed to say no. And so that, that suddenly impacted all of my life decisions and life relationships. Even from, oh, do you want to come over for coffee? Oh, you know, I just couldn't commit because I, I felt like if I said yes, I'd never be able to say no and I'd be forced into it or, mm. or work, you know. If I committed to something, suddenly I was trapped in it and it, that was new. And I I felt that being really new and it was a real bodily thing. Yeah. That was my first big kind of red flag of like, Ooh, I think you need to slow down.
0: Yeah. And your brain telling you that, that you have a control issue, right? You have a fear of your autonomy being taken away. It's so fascinating isn't it how the the brain can like find a little warning flare for you in another area that's analogous to what it is that you've experienced trying to let you know as gently as possible that you have something that you haven't unpacked yet. Um I think a lot of people experience that. It's a sort of like it feels like a kind of cognitive dysfunction, but it must be really discombobulating when it happens a year later because Uh, especially because it's kind of adjacent to what it is that you went through, but not directly, it doesn't, it's not very on the nose, right? And so at the time, did you even link it to what happened? Or did you just think, I'm losing my mind? Were you you able to uh, place that that was a trauma response? Or did you not think you had trauma because you'd gone this year without really addressing it?
1: this yeah is a this is probably the most fascinating part is that what I worked out with my therapist is is the the trauma of the sexual assault essentially was something that had landed on top of what we like to describe as like almost like a fault line of of unprocessed trauma from life b- being a trans person, and so this kind of one big doom of trauma has essentially ricocheted and broken everything so everything that once felt normal or once felt okay is suddenly a bit shaky and it took me a long time to put two and two together exactly like you say I thought I was you know first I thought oh maybe I'm just burnt out maybe I'm working too much or maybe it's my medication or maybe it's because I was on antidepressants um
0: why were you on antidepressants do you mind me asking how long had you been on those
1: so I I went straight on those when I first had my first session with my therapist after the assault, right. um, we kind of were like, I think we need to look into antidepressants. And I've, I'm still on them now. I'm on different ones and that's a journey in itself, finding the right mm. one for you, but I'm still on them now. And I was in that period last year of finding the right drugs for me and finding what works. And so I was like, okay, maybe it's that. It was really discombobulating, like you, exactly like you say, because trauma doesn't make a lot of cognitive sense all of the time.
0: No, and it's not linear. It's not linear. It's just sort of like it is debris. That's how a lot yeah. of trauma comes out. It's very like it's uh we make it sound more on the nose when we talk about it in the media um because it's so much easier to break it down that way, but that means that a lot of people therefore miss what trauma looks like because we don't know how much of a a weird sort of mist it is. And so, okay, so you had a sort of like burnout phase, right? Where you were no longer being able to do the things that you used to find relatively easy. And you, I mean, how severe did this get? Were you getting to the point of anxiety attacks, panic attacks, or was it just a feeling of, no, I can't do it?
1: It was really, um, yeah, so to, to kind of fast forward, I went through that period of what's going on. I kind of feel this kind of bizarre reaction and like trauma what I now know as a trauma response to feelings of commitment and feelings of not like I don't have autonomy and it got to summer 2022 and I essentially I I was just experiencing a lot of anxiety and it was predominantly around work it was just this idea that if I say yes to something or if I can't say yes to future work I then won't have a job I then will end up having to move home you know and I kind of spiraled into this like not realistic but slightly kind of catastrophic mind palace of this your life your life will never be the same again because you can't do your job anymore you know you can't do anything you're just trapped and I ended up having a moment where I just put the brakes on absolutely everything was basically housebound. I just stayed in. I couldn't, couldn't really leave the house. I struggled with fearing other people, so I was kind of like, I can't, like, don't talk to me, don't try and make me do anything, don't speak to me, don't try and arrange plans with me. It was really hard because I needed help, but my my the, my trauma response was saying, you can't trust anyone, you can't, mm. like, don't let people in because they might make you do something you don't want to do. And so it was, um, yeah, that was the lowest point. I think I've ever had
0: how did you get through that like what was the what's the protocol when something like that happens you just shut down
1: this is what I mean by doing the work I was essentially through the therapy that I've been doing every week and up until that point so you know kind of 18 months two years of gradually going through what's happened in the assault and in my life up to that point this breakdown and this kind of collapse of me being able to do anything. Although at the time felt like I'd gone backwards and I'd, I'd let it win, what I can actually see is, okay, this was part of the processing. This was part of me releasing that trauma or letting it exist letting it breathe and letting it flow. And that's what I mean by it looks and feels messy and horrible. And it can feel like you're going backwards before you're moving forwards because I was stuck, but you know, the, the perks of that were that when I then came out the other side, which is where I am right now, I am a lot stronger and a lot more resilient and a lot more aware of my own accessibility needs. And I know that sounds a bit wanky to say like, oh, when you, you know, if someone's listening now and they're in that, to say, oh, you know, when you come out the other side, you're going be, gonna to be grateful for this. You know, bollocks to that, because when you're in that, you don't want to hear that. But for me, that is, that is what I experienced. But I think the most important thing I needed to hear, which I can now realise when I was in that, is this is part of the process. You're not going backwards by being stuck. You're not letting anyone down by, if, by stopping or by staying mm-hmm. in bed. You're not, you're not doing anything wrong. You're listening to your body and you're listening to yourself and you're allowing yourself to process. That's all it was.
0: Yeah, I think um, for me, a breakdown, and it's always so much easier to see this in hindsight, but the breakdown for me, and I think for a lot of people, is the brain's way of showing you what it is that's been hiding in your mind for however long and allowing it to roam free for a second and for you to see exactly how debilitating it is and what you've been overriding every single day, trying to run away from it. It's like we cannot destroy or heal what we do not understand. And so sometimes that breakdown happens, I think, to create a stage in your brain for you to see exactly what's happening so that then you can actually figure out a plan if, you know, if you should be so lucky to figure out a plan and get help and and be able to describe exactly what it is that's happening. Because it's so hard to do when you're in denial and when you're running from it, and so I do understand what you mean about coming out the other side stronger. When I came out the other side, also with a lot of fear and a lot of anger, and and a really like sad and displaced shame. Did you did you feel any of those things afterwards?
1: Absolutely, because I think we live in a world. We live in a capitalist world. We live in a world that doesn't allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't allow you to stop. You know, if I was grateful in a way for the privilege to be able to stop. I'm self employed. I was. I had one of the most successful years of my career, the year that I burnt out and collapsed essentially. So although outwardly I was succeeding in lots of ways, I had huge amounts of shame because I'd essentially gotten to a point in my life and career where I was really doing what 10 year old me had dreamed of doing. And suddenly I was saying, oh no, let's stop actually. Um, I don't want to do that
0: right now. One of the ways it made me stronger, and I wonder if you can relate to this, is that it taught me who I really was in a way. And uh, I didn't frame it personally as like, this is who I am as a survivor. I was like, oh no, this is actually a lot of who I always was that I've been pretending to be for a really long time. Like, I really got to fucking know myself. When you have to look after yourself through something like that, when you have to survive something like that, you really find out what you're made of. And, and for me, that shame turned into an immense self-respect once I realised how awful what I'd been through was and, um, and dealt head-on with the trauma of it. I realised, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm, I'm really proud of myself for pulling myself out as slowly as it took I'm still proud of myself uh, as long as it took rather I'm still proud of myself and i am um, I became much more autonomous in every area of my life. having my autonomy taken away in that massive intimate pivotal way changed me forever and made me like defiant to make sure that I am as much in control not in a hopefully not an excessive way but of my own life now and I'm so much more real about the plans that I make, the jobs that I take. I'm so much more self-protective. I was never protective of myself before it happened. Because I think that's that's the beauty and joy of youth, is that you don't feel like you have to be. It's just you're just about gaining experience and knowledge and understanding. Um, but something like that happens and it's um, it forces you to go like, oh no, okay, I am a little bit vulnerable. I am a little bit fragile. I'm human. And I need to... I need to self-preserve and, and I'm, I don't know, it just made, it made me take that incredibly seriously. And I, I really wish that it hadn't taken something like that to do so, but I, um, I'm grateful purely for the, the lesson of the survival. Do you know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for articulating that so beautifully, because that's exactly what I have now is a, is a, is a respect for the person behind all of the
0: mm-hmm.
1: Wanting to succeed all the time, and the person who we see on social media and whatever. Nowadays, I'm so much more in tune with the fact that I'm just a really sensitive person. I'm a really vulnerable person at times, That doesn't I don't need to pretend that that's not there. I think that's what I used to do. Is I used to think, well, no one else feels stressed by these types of things, so I shouldn't. Or if other people can do can. Work ten jobs at the same time, and still have a social life, and whatever I should be able to. And actually, nowadays I'm like, okay, I really know what I like and what I don't like in my life. I don't like these things. I don't like people who are over familiar. <laughs> I don't like people who need to see you all the time, or for it to be a consistent friendship. Or I don't need. Do you know what I mean like I've I feel like I just not in an arrogant way, not in a In like a harsh way either, but I just feel exactly. You've got boundaries. Yeah, I know myself a lot more, and I've I finally, and that's that's what I'm doing now is I'm finally have boundaries, and to have boundaries and and to never have had them before, I think for the start anyway is going to feel like you're the aggressor because you're saying I'm going to put this boundary in, and because I've never really done that, I'm finally getting to a point where I'm like, okay, it's not a bad thing and it's not a rude thing or a shameful thing to say, these are my boundaries.
0: Absolutely. So to take us through the timeline, it happened. You went through a year of denial and, and slight recklessness and um, trying to kind of, I don't know, busy and fun it away. And then you had this immense forced pause in your life where you kind of melted down and came to a standstill and didn't understand what was happening to you uh, while it was happening. You thought you were just experiencing dysfunction that was unrelated to the sexual assault from the year before. So then what happened? How did you get out of that? Did you seek help? Did, some, did someone force help upon you? Did friends intervene? What did that look like, that, the end of that period? How did you get from there to here? Because I think that's a really important part of this is someone who has also had like a slow-burning PTSD um, response. How do you identify it and what the fuck do you do?
1: It's a really tough... It's really tough to think about, for me Mm -hmm. personally, to think about that period of time in my life and to think, how did we get out the other side? Because, for example, when I was in it, all I wanted... Was to know how to get out. Uh, every day I was like, oh, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll feel different. Or maybe, maybe I just need a couple more weeks. And the way that I got out of it and the way that I like to think of it is twofold. There's one way that's quite like traditional, and that was I seek medical intervention. So I went and spoke to a doctor about my medication. He realized that maybe the meds that I was on were not the right ones. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we went up into a stronger antidepressant and we slowly built up my tolerance to that and saw how that impacted and that definitely helped. Medication is like one part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So that really helped in a way it helped me to begin to see slightly clearer
0: yeah, Zachary Levi came on the podcast and he said the medication, I think, doesn't switch the light bulb on, but it gives you a step ladder so that you can reach the light bulb to turn it on yourself. And I always thought yes. that was a really lovely way of explaining how medication helped. It's not going to take the pain away. It's not going to change what happened to you, but it is going to give you the space from the, it's like a, like a fire alarm going off in your brain all the time when, when trauma um devours you whole and so it just stops that alarm so that you can fucking think clearly for a second Mm. and so I'm glad you had that it's also really hard if you're a a trans person in the United Kingdom in the last (laughs) three years uh it's very hard to know where your stress is coming from given like an extraordinary culture of hate which we discussed the last time you were on this podcast the first time you came on Uh, and it's only gotten fucking worse since then so I can't imagine going through something like this that is so dehumanizing in and of itself when it happens, and then being so dehumanized all around you. I can't imagine having to because that, that therein lies its own separate trauma, right? So it's so it must be so hard in a period like that to then even be able to identify where your fear or where your dysfunction's coming from or why you feel detached. because there's plenty of trans people in the United Kingdom. Who haven't been assaulted recently, who feel incredibly traumatized and far away from themselves. So I imagine that also made it really hard, especially as you're on the kind of front line of taking on those conversations and being the advocate or voice or fighting the enemy. Um, so it must have been a really fucking hectic time to then be in recovery from, you know, one of the most life altering things that can happen to a person.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's why. I, my therapist, that's why he kind of describes this, the sexual assault is like the final piece of trauma that broke the camel's back almost, because he, I remember saying to him I don't know where this is all coming from and he was like, you, you've been existing as an out trans person in the world for, you know, 10 plus years, and you've been an out queer person since you were, you know, 12. You might not realise it, but That trauma has compounded in kind of layers of sediment inside of you so that your trauma, all of my trauma responses were muddled because I didn't, they were coming from, was it coming from transphobia? Was it coming from the assault? Was it coming from being judged for being femme presenting? Like all of this stuff that I was feeling, I couldn't like trace back to its origin. There were so many
0: fires to put out, like. How do you even know where to start in a time like that?
1: Exactly. And then and put the cherry on top is, is the kind of denial of it all. Like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm strong. I can do this. And
0: and you want to be yeah. that, especially like as an advocate and as a marginalised person, because you want to show everyone that they're not getting to you, or the people sending you disgusting abuse in your DMs, or the people on television campaigning for your erasure. You want to show them that you're thriving. You don't want to just show them. You want to show young people, Right what, what trans thriving and trans joy and trans beauty, uh, looks like. And so there's this kind of like, you know, and I've seen this in a lot of my friends in the UK who are trans, especially that like, there's this defiance that feels like a lifeline for so many of you, because you also know that that, that lifeline for you is a lifeline for some other 12 year old who's watching you right now, who feels confused and alone. And so there's this, this huge responsibility that so many of my friends put upon themselves in the face of so much um bullshit because they feel this like um duty to prove the joy and the beauty that does exist within living your truth but it becomes performative when you are in your you know your hour of need
1: yeah and again thank you for articulating that so so clearly because that's exactly what it is i couldn't It wouldn't have been fair or right for me to say, you know, to kind of put up this illusion of what life could look like if I wasn't honest with what the reality of it was, you know, I needed to say that. And I think through being able to be honest now and say all these things that have happened, that is me showing my trans joy and my trans excellence and my trans kind of mess is -hmm. because transness is At the moment, especially, transness is seen as something that has to be perfect, otherwise it has to be erased. And if it's not perfect, and if it's not, if it doesn't tick all the boxes, or if it doesn't have any errors within it, then it's okay. But no human being is like that. Everyone is messy and has problems and has to sort their shit out, and I think that includes being... Trans, like transness is included in that and i think a lot of the time we don't see that in the world and we see, we don't see what goes into making someone the resilient person that they are
0: go spread the word when you get a fresh hot mcrispy from mcdonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag don't try to wait till you get home always respect hot chicken The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So upon learning that you have PTSD, upon finally coming to accept it and that it looks different to what you had expected, what has the journey been like since then to take it seriously and start to actually recover to get to the point where, when I asked you how you were today... You're very well. Right. Congratulations on getting from that point to this one. Thank uh, you. In a really short period of time. What has that journey looked like since then, since, since understanding and accepting?
1: It's very much uh, akin to what you mentioned earlier around kind of self-respect and self-compassion. The second I unlocked that awareness that a lot of what has happened to me wasn't my fault, and not just the assault, but in my whole life, And so therefore, the responses that I have to the world are not me being deviant or are not me being malfunctioning. You know, I'm not inherently wrong, but I'm just a product of my time and my existence in a transphobic and homophobic world. I was able to have compassion for the fact that I was just reacting to a world that felt like it didn't love me. And so the antidote to that was, well, let's make sure we do all the things that you love. What do you love to do? What do you want to do? So, you know, the theater going, going back to fashion, thinking, what do you want to look like now? What do you want to do? How do you want to, do you want to look like Tintin? Go on then, let's see what that looks like. Like just going back to like scrapping things, you know, really putting myself at the center of the decision making for the first time thinking, is this for you? I was getting the auton- autonomy back.
0: Yeah. And it, f- and, and yeah, and it feels like you're reinventing yourself, but you're not, you're actually figuring out who you were all along when you weren't having to wear all this fucking armor and mask in every way. Right.
1: Absolutely. Especially. And that's why I find it so interesting to look at my enjoyment and love of theater again, because That for me is the pinpoint that this isn't new. I'm just going back to something that I stopped enjoying Mm -hmm. because I, because life happened, because fear happened, because prejudice came in and I started this charade seems like a quite a harsh word, but I started putting on the armor Mm -hmm. and now it's like, okay, I still have the armor on. Of course we all do, but I'm taking it off gradually and I'm, giving myself permission to say have a life people are gonna have an opinion on it whatever you do and I used to always hear people say that and I'd be like "Ah, bollocks you know like sure fine I am doing what I want to do but now I can say I'm really firmly beginning to understand that I am a trans person with PTSD who has different accessibility needs in this life and needs to take things sometimes at one mile an hour. And I like a routine and I'll have a roast dinner on a Sunday if I want. And I'm, I'm quite traditional in certain aspects of my life. I prefer the national trust to a nightclub, but I'm, I'm done kind of <laughs> like making excuses for that. I'm just saying, yeah, that's what I want to do. Let's see what that looks like. Rather than being what other people want me to be.
0: Yeah. And having to feel this this need to be fabulous and glittery and shiny all the time is fucking exhausting. Yeah, you know that. It's exhausting as I, in of I do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, i mean i mean i've been a miserable old cunt um on this podcast from the start so uh thankfully everyone's <laughs> everyone knows that i'm really basic and boring and it makes me feel very free uh with the audience and with all of my friends i've been um i've been living in my uh uh squaloresque truth for a while now <laughs> and but i must say great
1: you have helped me with that and i think there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot to be said about people who who you can just see authentically being like, oh, I don't really want to do that. I'd rather stay in and just have have a kebab. You know what I mean? Like people, you know that they're just being honest. They're not saying it to try and be cool. They're not doing it to like create this narrative. They're just- I'm
0: relatable. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like-
0: No, no, I think I'm very unrelatable in many ways because I, you know, I I just, I just, there's certain things that I just can't do or that I don't find interesting. And- I have been given certain lessons as to how short life is. And now I'm just determined to not spend another minute of my life doing something that I don't want to do. I feel obsessed with it. I start to panic when I'm bored. I start to actually panic because I'm I'm wasting like minutes of my life doing something that I don't want to do. It gives me actual like almost hives. I have like a histamine reaction uh, <laughs> to boredom. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm thrilled to hear that living authentically is like a part of your overall healing. Cause it's true. Sometimes it does take that one big event in your life. It could be the death of a family or it could be the pandemic to realize that actually I, I haven't been happy for a really long time. And there's this, there's this thing that we do, especially I think like certain queer people and and not to delve into your family dynamic, but you know, especially queer people, like once we, Leave the family home. We often have to leave more often than not, very independently, more so than kids who aren't queer a lot of the time, uh, to go off and and live our true identity. But I think for anyone who leaves home at 18, it's like you leave the parenting space and then no one tells you you have to parent yourself now. So you're just totally uh, untethered to anything and you're just going out there, raw dogging the world. Just, just experiencing everything bare without, the, um, without a life jacket. And, and it takes a, almost always a moment of some form of, not well, always trauma, but something life-altering that happens where you are made extremely vulnerable and your inner child comes to the forefront that you recognise, oh shit, no one's been parenting me this whole time. Even if you have parents, even if you like your parents, they're just not with you 24 hours a day anymore. And that's when you realise you have to parent yourself. That's where you realise you have to kind of cradle yourself like a little baby, cradle that inner child and go, what do you need? What do you, How do I get you to shut the fuck up? <laughs> do, you want, do you want an ice cream? Do you want a, a roast? Do you want a kebab? Um, and I've been able to quiet the child in my head by integrating with her. And that is... Uh, that's been a really interesting part of my recovery. So, so what would you say, given all of this, this like non-linear journey through a major event in your life, what are the main things you would like the listener to take away?
1: I really want the listener to be able to understand themselves a little bit more. If it wasn't for me being able to hit rock bottom, And then listen to people talking about it like we have just done. Seeing other people being so honest. I would never have gotten out of that space. So I want this to be a support for those who need it. A support for those who are in that right now. Who want to listen to someone share where they are at. And have it mirrored. But I also want it to be a resource for people who are in a good place. To say, well fucking done. Look how much progress we've made. I want people to be able to say, yeah, we've made it through some hard shit and we're on the other side. And I want people to be able to congratulate themselves for that because that's mm. what I'm also doing here is I'm talking to you, but I'm also reflecting on, we're both that we're reflecting on a life that has thrown us up, thrown us around the block a bit.
0: <laughs> yeah. I feel like a ping pong ball. It's mm. also really important, especially in this climate, for trans person to be able to come and publicly talk about the fact that we are so similar and trauma and pain and human callousness and unkindness hits us all the same way and we are all vulnerable and we have similar, I don't say enemies in that way, but we, um, the same people enact violence on us all and we have been so poisoned by the media to see trans people as the danger, as the perpetrator of the violence, as the threat. And, and actually, these are the much needed societal reminders that actually you're incredibly vulnerable and uh, in, in ways that are so similar to those who are not living in that same experience and... We all just need to look after each other and identify where the real threat is coming from together and support each other together and fight that archaic pattern together. And it's very humanising and I, I really appreciate you coming on and being open about this journey and what it has taught you about the whole of your life rather than just that one event, which in and of itself means that your recovery gets to not be defined by that one moment.
1: Yes. Thank you. No, yeah. Thank you for the space to be able to safely have that conversation and to to be able to sit here as a trans person who has changed a lot and who will always change, but who's someone who can say, Let's look at the similarities and not the differences. Exactly. That that's exactly it. So thank you for that.
0: Anytime. Uh please come back again and again and again and and Thank you for your ongoing work for others and your your constant desire to share uh, everything you're going through as soon as you can in, in order to help others feel less alone. Um, I'm glad that people that you were looking at or listening to online were able to do the same for you and maybe we would just all continue to pay that forward. But um, for now, it's been really nice talking to you and I'm incredibly uh, in awe of your recovery
1: thank you so much lots of love
0: lots of love thank you so much for listening to this week's episode i weigh with jamila jamil is produced and researched by myself jamila jamil erin finnegan and kimmy gregory it is edited by andrew carson and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend james blake if you haven't already please rate review and subscribe to the show it's a great way to show your support we would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh my openness and my fucking loud mouth and my love of my sister and I weigh my relationship with my kids and my society as much as I can't stand it half the time. And I weigh my rebellious attitude and protesting nature. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.